Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. We bees back. We're here. K nut. What's happening? Not much. Yeah. Show number, I don't know, 700? Something like that. Yep. We're a Joe Rogan without an audience. The, um, the, t- this episode will be interesting. This is truly about panic. This is about what do people, what do you think people care about most in a panic? They care about the things that they don't know right, that for, they no, I'm saying, With respect to money, what do they care about? That they're going to be able to pay their bills and, and survive. Yes, cash. Meaning people just don't understand the importance of cash as king and having your cash work for you. I mean, we're all flinging money around willy-nilly, and then the hammer comes down. And so I don't think people respect cash enough as a, as a, as a hedge or as a, you know, you keep six months a year. We're going to talk cash with, uh, of course, Gary Zimmerman. Who you, everybody trusts Gary Zimmerman with their cash. Of course. Zimmerman Cash. So Gary's an old friend of mine. He's worked all over the world. He's worked at big banks. Had a uh, had a big idea during the last crash when people were freaking out. No one knows more panic because he was inside the uh, vortex of I think Shitty Bank, Citibank at the time in Hong Kong or in China. I forget. Oh, we'll wow. find out. And during that time. People freaked out. They wanted cash and they were worried about f- how much their cash was insured. So he came up with a product called Max My Interest. So we're going to call him, very simple name, Max My Interest. It allows people to uh, use the software to push your money from, you just hook up your bank account. And if you have a lot of cash, instead of earning zero, it uh, pushes it around all the online banks. It's all secure and you get the highest rate. So it's just a way, instead of earning zero, to earn closer to, 1.7 today, even with rates at zero. So uh, all insured up to a million bucks, I think. So we're going to go through the full details with Gary. And it's really simple. Go to maxmyinterest.com. But first, pay it off. One of our uh, portfolio companies, um, a venture backed by us, building the next generation of B2B repayment solutions for student debt. They've built the first federal debt API that helps any fintech or financial institution address student loans within their financial services product. The average borer saves $3,000 per year from their personalized assessment and enrollment functionality. These tools are especially helpful during the COVID-19 situation as millions of borers are losing part of their income or their jobs entirely. Companies using their API can provide immediate relief by enrolling them in income-driven repayment plans and forgiveness options. It's payitoff.io, P-A-Y-I-T-O-F-F dot I-O. Send it around to anybody that you know has college debt. They will thank you. They will save money. They will reposition themselves in the right products and interest payments. Okay. So um, let's get Gary on the phone. Kena. Hello? Gary. Howard, how are you? You're on podcast with friends eating sushi. No, this comedians and car- <laughs> you're on you're on uh, Jewish guys talking about gash in a panic. That's the name of my podcast. <laughs> a couple of I Hamish like guys talking better. about panic with a lot of cash. <laughs> so where are you hold up today? So we're up in Canada. 
Um, all is pretty calm here. I would say that the... Are you um, in Montreal? Where are you? Not, no, we're in uh, southwestern Ontario. I oh, think uh, you may be familiar with these stomping yeah. grounds. Wow. So, but all is good here. You were supposed to be in Japan. Good. What, uh, you just you just decided to cancel that about a month ago, maybe? Or what, when did you decide? Well, yeah, we've been watching it for the last month or so. And originally we thought, well, maybe we'll go anyway. And then, you know, we started to hear reports from friends around the ground that, um, you know, schools were canceled and then venues were closed and it became pretty clear that it wasn't the right time to go. So we'll find another time to go. Um, maybe we'll make it back for the Olympics when that's rescheduled next year. And you lived there, correct? Or Hong Kong? We did. We lived in Tokyo for three years. And did you like it there? It was fantastic. I mean, really a wonderful place to live. Beautiful country, really nice people. Um, you know, just fascinating, but completely polar opposite from North America. Oh in terms my God. Of it's really the moon. It's like the moon. Yeah. But that's sort of what makes it special, right? It's, it's sort of, you know, they have their own culture. It's been pretty isolated. Um, and uh, developed a, a very unique culture, but really a wonderful place to live. Yeah, unfortunately, I went pre-internet, and it just scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, it was really know? was it really was a different. It was like being on the moon. I was first there in 1995, and there was no English anywhere. Right, like, um, and then no English, no English, and then the World Cup came. I think in 2003. Mm. And that completely changed everything for foreigners because they yeah. put English on the subway. And so now you could get around. Mm. So when I moved there, I didn't know, you know, a word of Japanese basically. Um, and you know, over time I learned how to, you know, order dinner and direct a taxi. And eventually I could figure out when a meeting was going off the rails. And that's when I knew I had made it. <laughs> that's when you know you made it, when there's just kamikaze in you. <laughs> the, uh, so tell people a little bit about uh, Gary Zimmerman and Max, my interest in the business you built. Sure. Um, well, Max is, is kind of an accidental business. Um, I was uh, a banker at one of the large banks that had a near-death experience during the financial crisis. Actually, well, I was in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. um, and it struck me that, you know, if that bank were to fail, every dollar that I had at the bank that was above the FDIC limit would have left me as an unsecured creditor, um, which is when a bank fails, basically no better than being an equity holder. Um, and if you think about cash, the reason you hold cash in your portfolio is for safety and liquidity. And I realized that all of a sudden, here I was in the middle of the financial crisis with neither safety nor liquidity. Um, and so I was trying to figure out what to do. Um, and I looked around and a number of the brokerage firms had these sort of broker deposit solutions where they sell your cash to a bunch of other banks. But those, um, I, I thought that those really weren't so liquid either. And so the simplest thing I could think of, you know, sometimes the best solution is the simplest one, was to open just a, a bunch of a bunch more bank accounts in my own name. And that way I could keep the funds below the FDIC limited each bank. Um, I knew that the funds were mine. I could access them directly same day whenever I wanted to. Um, and so it was a pretty simple idea. The it wasn't simple, man. I was, was, I was helping companies back then and they were <laughs> freaking out. How many accounts do I need to open? And I'm like, I don't know, a lot. It, it's tricky. I mean, you know, it's a good problem to have to need a lot of bank accounts, but um uh, anyway, this sort of seemed like the simplest solution. So while all of my colleagues were panicking about whether the bank was going to fail, um, I was running around opening up bank accounts. And because I was in Japan, Zimmerman. I couldn't just walk around the corner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I couldn't just walk around the corner to Chase or City or Wells because they didn't have any branches in Japan. So I went online, um, like all good people do when they're looking to solve a problem. And that's where I stumbled upon the online banks. Um, 
what was neat about the online banks is that you could open an account in just a few minutes. Um, it didn't matter that I was in Japan or the bank was back in the U.S. Huh. And um, so I just opened a whole bunch of banks and spread cash across those accounts uh, to keep it fully insured. Mm-hmm. So that was the beginning. But then um, being the kind of nerdy banker that I was, you know, I track all this stuff with the spreadsheet every month. And I found that the bank accounts that I had opened were no longer offering the best rates a month later. Um, and a month the after that, a different set of banks switch. were offering the best rates. Yeah. So look, I mean, these bank accounts are effectively commodities. It doesn't matter. As long as you're below the FDIC limit, it doesn't matter whether it's at bank A or bank B or bank C. And so I began actively managing cash, basically moving cash from one bank to another to make sure I was earning the highest yield while keeping everything FDIC. And what were rates back then in 08? Zero or were they one? Uh, So this was uh, back in 2009. They were actually still fairly high. And then the Fed started cutting rates and they fell really quickly. So when I started doing this, rates were as high as 4%. Oh, my God. By the end of the financial crisis. I would take that right now. Yeah. Um, It's too bad you can't lock them in. So um, by the time we got to the end of the financial crisis, we were actually in the same rate environment we are right now, where the Fed had basically cut the federal funds rate to a range of zero to 25 basis points. So basically between zero and a quarter of the percent. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time, the online bank rates were about, uh, let's say 90 basis points. So just under 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that was still a lot more than the brick and mortar banks were paying. And so it struck me after I managed these accounts manually for a while that, you know, a, this was a colossal waste of time, mm-hmm. right? Why was I spending my Sundays tracking interest rates and logging into bank accounts and moving funds? It was really tedious. But B, um, I looked back and I realized that I picked up an extra 40K or so of incremental risk-free return. And, you know, as someone in finance, you're taught to look out for these, these opportunities. These are like the magical unicorns of finance, mm-hmm. an ability to pick up incremental risk-free return. And so I started to think, well, I wonder if there's a way that I could automate this process. So I don't have to spend time managing these accounts myself, but I could still automatically earn the highest yield possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of the genesis for Max My Interest. How did I meet you again? Because I liked it right away. How did I meet you? You know, I'm trying to think about this because it's oh, been maybe, years. Oh, uh, um, maybe, what's his I name think uh, from uh, co I think it was Greg. Greg who? No, I think it was even before, well, it might have been, yeah, it might have been 70. It was 70. Um, it might have also been Greg Garbrandt's. Nope, but, uh, but both we both know Greg, who's CEO of uh, Bank of the Internet, but uh, or Axos now, but uh, no, it was it was 70. He's a master. Was it 70? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, so 70 introduced uh, us, I liked it right away, and but it's not an easy business, right? So you've been at it for how long? It's a great product. It's just not an so, easy business because you got people <laughs> in their you, cash. Yeah. As much but, as they like panic, they don't really want to trust like a name they don't understand. Well, the, the, so the business is coming up on seven years old, which we wow. think of as still in the early stages. It is. Um, we're we're sort of focused on you know a, a secular change in the market, mm-hmm. um, and if you look at the emergence of e-commerce. Um, in the retail industry, we see a lot of parallels there. Hmm. And, you know, that's, that's played out over more than 20 years so far. And I think a lot of people would argue that Amazon still has a long way to run. Right. Um, so we see a lot of the same trends in online banking. And interestingly, if you were to draw a graph of growth in online banking as a percentage of the banking industry and growth in e-commerce as a percentage of the retail industry, those growth curves look exactly the same. 
except that banking is about six years behind. Yeah, I tell so founders, like, fintech is an extra five years. Yeah. Whatever you thought it was, add five years. So you think you're going to be a flip? Mm-hmm. Add five years. Five years is a flip in fintech. And, and the key is just to have the patience. So you need to build a business model that's robust to business cycles. You need to you know think about your, ca- your company and capitalize it um, with a view towards being around for 20 years. And, and that's sort of how we've, how we've thought of things. And so it's you, you had the idea, you leave what you're doing, correct? correct. Or did you do it as a, as did you do it as like a weeks and, and weekends and nights thing? You can't really do that. I mean, investment banking is more than a full-time job. And I sort of felt that I really needed to have a clean break to be able to think about this. So I left the bank in the spring of 2013. Um, and um, went through, you know, gardening leave, and um, and then uh, July first, two thousand thirteen, started the, the company. Really, with just a blank sheet of paper. And today, if someone goes to maxmyinterest.com, because uh, I use it, is how does it work? So it's really simple. Um, the whole idea behind Max is that you don't want to switch banks. Right? We know that people's relationships with their existing brick and mortar bank are really, really sticky. And there are reasons that people like those banks, right? They might love them or hate them depending on the day of the week, but fundamentally they offer sort of everything you might need soup to nuts. Um, and it's a very sticky relationship. You've got your mortgage, you have direct deposit, bill pay and all sorts of things. And so our, our fundamental belief is that uh, people are not going to switch banks, but what they are willing to do is supplement their existing banking relationship. And so the way that Max works is uh, you come to MaxMyInterest.com, you link your existing brick-and-mortar checking account to your brokerage account. It could be at you know, Wells Fargo or Chase or Citi or Schwab. Um, doesn't really matter. And then we help you open higher-yielding online savings accounts at some of the nation's leading online banks. Mm-hmm. And what we've done over the years is we've figured out how to make that process really, really simple. So you can open, link, and begin funding a new account in as little as 60 seconds. Fascinating. It's amazing. And so do you see spikes? Like how, how's the business growing? Or is it just growing? Like you said, it's just like, it's not like a hockey stick ever. It's just, it grows in, it grows in clumps based on events or is it just, or is it not a smooth curve because you're, you're dealing with higher net worth people? Well, it's, you know, it looks a lot like a very classic doubling or tripling curve. So it has that sort of beautiful sort of smooth, uh, upward sloping curve. What's interesting about Max is we've never advertised. So um, really most of the growth has come either through word of mouth. Sometimes that comes from friends and colleagues telling one another. Sometimes that comes from earned media. So we've been featured in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and Kramer. Um, Mad Money with Jim Kramer. Yeah, that was fun. Uh-huh. Um, he's really sharp. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the other half of the business comes through financial advisors. So we now have advisors from more than a thousand wealth management firms. So that was where I always thought it would go. So that's, that took a while, but that's working. That's working really well. Um, I mean, the, the last couple of weeks, the phone has just been ringing off the hook because yeah. all of a sudden, because I realized they're fucking 60, 40, 40 portfolio. The 40 wasn't cash or 10 wasn't cash. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? Like that whole well, thing imploded. I mean, I'm sure the thing that's happened. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. So, so right. Like that's no, why the, I, it took this event for a financial, for financial advisors to get off their lazy. And I don't say they're lazy, but you know what I mean? Everybody's in the same trade. There was no cash. Well, look, I mean, everyone's got different priorities and every customer is a little different, but there certainly was a focus on, you know, indexing equities. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and um, chasing 0% interest mm-hmm. rates. 
Well, I mean, that's sort of the other thing. So when the Fed cut rates, first it cut by 50 bips, and then it cut by another 100 basis points, you basically had a 1.5% um, decrease in the federal funds rate, which basically drove rates to zero. So if you look at the yield curve today, a three-month T-bill pays you six basis points. That's 0.06%, right? A 12-month a tw- uh, T-bill is 15 basis points. A 10-year is, sec- is 67 basis points. You could go all the way up 30 years, lock up your money for 30 years, you get 132 basis points. Our top it. rate today on same-day liquid cash is 171 basis points. And that's because so, you've built you- software to take to to push the money to the right spot. Well, yeah, and the, the, the simple thing about Max is that, and this is sort of what motivated the creation of the company, is I started digging into the cost structures of banks. And this is really interesting, um, or at least I find it really interesting. Um, we might have just put everyone else to sleep on the podcast. But, Luz, listen, um, if this saves one person <laughs> from Ambien, we've done our work here. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, if you look at the cost structure of a bank, right? Banks have a whole bunch of costs. They have branches and tellers and regulators to deal with and all sorts of things. But the difference in operating costs between a brick and mortar bank and an online bank is about 150 basis points. So what that means is that all else being equal, if you keep your money at an online bank, they ought to be able to pay you 1.5% or percentage points more than the brick and mortar bank offering exactly the same product. So you know, during the financial crisis, the online banks were paying about 80 basis points more than the brick and mortar banks, mm-hmm. which meant that they were keeping about half of the savings for themselves and giving the other half to the customer in the form of higher rates. That alone is a pretty attractive arbitrage, right? 80 basis points means that if you're sitting on a million of cash, that's an extra $8,000 a year of just completely found money. Um, but what we, our bet was that actually as rates rose, that spread would widen. And eventually we thought that the online banks would pay 150 basis points more than brick and mortar banks. Huh. And that's exactly what happened. Although it actually got better than that because along the way, what we figured out is that the online banks, the sort of nationally advertised online banks spend an awful lot of money on customer acquisition. If you do the math, uh, it turns out they're spending about 200 basis points or 2% of your deposits just to acquire you as a customer. Right, that might be advertising on CNBC. That might be paying a referral fee to one of these click-through networks. Mm-hmm. And we said, well, we don't want there to be any conflicts of interest. So we're not going to charge the banks per deposit. We're not going to charge the banks per account because then we'd be incentivized to send people to one bank versus another. And we want to create a platform that's really transparent and fair and open. So we're not going to do that. We're not going to accept those payments from banks. And as a result, we stripped out all the marginal costs of acquiring customers. And so the banks on our platform can afford to pay a preferential rate to our customers. So you can earn more than you could if you went and opened up accounts on your own. And it's also still more profitable for the bank. So it's really a win-win-win. Yeah, it's one of those software win-win-wins. You know, it's not sexy. It's a long game. You're building a platform that's a long game. And people stick. Are you finding that people stick with you? It's incredibly sticky. The most common thing we hear from customers and financial advisors and other people we talk to, it's a no brainer. Yeah. Right. And so does it work with Plaid um, or does it work with, who are you working with to like make it hook up with people's banks? Well, we had to build a lot of software. You built it yourself. I Um, think that was smart. Yeah. We actually just got our, our, um, we're just awarded our third patent, although it took forever. These are things that were filed in 2013, 2014. Um, But um, none of the solutions that were out there at the time we thought were sufficiently robust or stable. 
Um, and one of the problems with aggregation, I mean, aggregation has been around for 20 years. I remember using Yodley at, at Merrill Lynch um, in the late 90s. But one of the problems with aggregation is it relies on logins and passwords. And a client enters their login and passwords. That means they have to share it with someone. And then, you know, the link can break. And so what we built in the Max Common application is we built open new bank accounts um, without any logins or passwords. So um, with, with those banks that are supported on the Max Common application, once you sign up for the bank, 60 seconds later, you're approved. And then that link just persists forever. You never have to do anything. Um, and so that was sort of key to, to making the platform work in a, in a really you know, smooth way. And so how do you deal with this panic? Like, I mean, you, you have a simple, I mean, it's not sexy. It's a simple business. People are coming to you. You're probably getting counter cyclical or what do you call it? A, a counter cyclical type thing where you're busier in a panic. Well, I think first of all, this market is massive. Um, when we True. when we first launched Max, we were focused on the biggest on, financial market. It's it's I mean maybe the bond market is bigger, but cash in and of itself or cash and cash equivalents is about a thirteen trillion dollar market in the U.S. So it's not as big as the bond market, maybe not as big as the equity markets, but it's pretty big. And if you look at high net worth households in the U.S., they're holding about twenty seven percent of their assets in cash right now. What? Maybe more. So we're pretty conservative. Financial credit. We're pretty conservative. And the funny thing is, when we started talking to financial advisors about this, they said, well, as a fiduciary, now that I know about this, I, I can't not use it. Like, this is such a no-brainer. Of course Hello, that's why, yeah. I mean, it's a hard sell, but, but like... then they said, well, that's, that's the importance of an RIA versus a broker-dealer, uh-huh. right? As RIAs are fiduciaries, and they have to do what's best for you. So interesting. But the other comment, yeah. Um, but the other and I saw you opened an RIA recently. Yes. Because you believe in this too. I'm such a so big we have to do well, best We're printing money. Someone's got to help people with this money. And give them independent advice. Independent advice. The world is changing. Risk is changing. So keep going. And that's what Compound does. I love those tweets that uh, Charlie is sending yeah, Charlie's out. Charlie's a legend. They're, with all the market data, they're fantastic. So, so keep going. Yeah. So anyway, but the other thing the advisor said to us is, um, but wait a minute, my client's portfolio is only 3% allocated to cash, so why do I care? And we said, well, gee, that's really interesting because Capgemini puts out this thing every year called the World Wealth Report. It shows that among high net worth households in the U.S., that is those with more than a million of investable assets outside their primary residence, that those households keep on average 27.1% of their assets in cash. So what accounts for the discrepancy? And what we realized is that the big difference is the money that you put in your portfolio is the money that you want to invest. The money you're afraid to touch is the stuff you keep in cash and it's just sitting at your brick and mortar bank. And we have, I mean, every day we see new clients come and link million plus dollar accounts that were at Wells Fargo earning three basis points. And we can instantly move them from three basis points to like 170 basis points. And they That's can still just money. quickly move their money back to Wells Fargo if they got to clear a check or whatever. It's the same day. Same, same day. Yeah. Same day. It's just yeah. your own money in your own accounts. It's magic. You know, I so know it was magic. It's like, 16. I remember pitching it to Fred Wilson. He was like, oh, yeah, he pitched Fred and he was like, no, no, no. He just knows not to listen. And then he heard Max my interest. He's like, oh. Now, you haven't raised a lot of money, though. You haven't gone the VC route. We, we've sort of carefully curated a group of investors who we thought had a lot of expertise in banking and finance and wealth management and asset management. And they've been incredibly helpful. 
and they're putting the um, loan agreement with you. Advice all the time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We wanted permanent capital that wasn't tied to you know a short-term fund um, where they could really be around for this 20-year journey that we're on. Am I part of that or am I the sucker? <laughs> no, no, you're part of that. Oh, okay. Have I helped? <laughs> You've been very helpful, Howard. <laughs> Only the plug. <laughs> Gary and I chat maybe once a month about this because it's just like, I know it's a, I mean, it's just one of those. It was a no brainer for the long game. Like, I mean, if it, it well, has to work. Trading, we've been trading ideas on a sector. I mean, I, I love your, in full disclosure, I'm, I'm an investor in, in uh, one of Howard's funds, which has been phenomenal and a really fun ride. Um, but uh, you'll be trading notes on the sector from time to time. We talked about it when you were thinking about starting an RIA, um, which, you know, we love that business. Um because of the customer orientation, you know, that the old school brokerage business, um, is, is on the way out and the RA business is growing really quickly. And one of the reasons is, uh, the ability to avoid conflicts of interest. So they if you're must, a so that's dealer, a good point. They must do the right thing. Like they may not, but they're correct. supposed to based on the word fiduciary. Right. Whereas the broker dealers, you know, they're commissioned. So, um, the sort of dirty little secret of the broker dealer industry uh, and this has been true for decades, by the way, is that about 50% of the profit earned by broker-dealers is simply the spread they earn on your cash by paying you nothing on it. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, that's that's even more because now the commissions have gone to zero. Broker-dealers are making probably 60 to 80% of their profit by keep taking the money that's in your portfolio and paying almost nothing on it and keeping the spread and turning around and lending it to others at a higher rate. So they're effectively banks. Yep. And there's nothing wrong with being a bank, but we think it's Schwab's important bank. that that be clearly disclosed. Schwab's basically just a big bank. Mm-hmm. And um, um, what else is exciting you about fintech with this panic? Because it is a panic. Well, I think, you know, look, it, it's a it's a really unfortunate humanitarian crisis. And, uh, but we're just covering it from the angle be- of panic. So don't, don't feel bad. I mean, obviously we all feel bad, <laughs> but this really is a show about panic. So like, Putting the medical well, panic aside, you're seeing financial panic. I, I always try to look for the silver lining in things. So the, the first thing that I would observe um, is that uh, the more market cycles you've lived through, the better an investor you can become. True, true. Because there are common themes and there are common events, but there are also common feelings. And it's that feeling you have deep in your gut when the market falls 10% a day. Um, that if you're experiencing that for the first time, it can be terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're experiencing it for the third time, you could say, oh, I've seen this twice before. I know what's going to happen a month from now, three months from now, and a year from now. Well, if you're Trump supporter, um, you've experienced and- it three times in a week. <laughs> <laughs> so we in that, we had, joking aside, we've never seen this. I actually had a, a timer set on my watch for how many minutes in until... Uh, make fun of the guy? Yeah, um, it's not even a joke, right? Like, it's just, we've never seen this. That's all I'm saying is we've never seen it. It's Well, it, you know, it's if you think about what makes, I remember learning this in like my introductory economics class, that one of the key tenets for, um, you know, for the capitalist economy, for a market-based economy to work is stable rule of law, right? Which means you need, you need to be able to predict how, uh, you know, how the rules will react under different circumstances. And it certainly feels as if it's harder to predict that these days. Right. That's what I think. So so we've been through these market cycles. I think to answer your question, the the key thing we're learning as a society is that a lot of things that we thought we had to do in person, 
we don't actually need to do in person. Exactly. And bank branches were among the first things to close. Uh, we closed the schools. We closed in Canada. They even closed Tim Hortons, if you can believe it. Although they kept the drive-through open because you can't be without your Timmies. Um, but bank ban- branches closed, and so it sort of calls into question: If I can survive for the next three months without a physical bank branch, do I need it to reopen? Um, right? What is it? And you know, for the so bank, in those intervening and three months, like ATM they, machines, like this is like I haven't talked about this yet. But like, even with my son today, I was like, "Don't go to the bank machine, dude, unless you're wearing gloves." Like, you don't—he doesn't get it. Don't pump gas unless you're wearing gloves. Like, the bank is going to have to be reimagined fast. Or, or it was meant to die, and now those releases are a joke, which is maybe why the banks are getting hammered relatively more than other people. Well, I think there are a lot of issues facing the banks. Every financial institutions banker and research analyst that I speak with thinks that the banks will come out of this fine. Um, but if you think about it, this is accelerating the digital divide and accelerating the digitization. And there will be winners and there will be losers, just like every sort of disruptive event. But, you know, much in the same way that people have realized that they can have a business meeting just fine over Zoom and they don't have to spend a day flying there and back for a 45-minute meeting. Um, you know, I think people are also realizing that even if they were reluctant to get comfortable with digital banking, it actually works. And it works really well. And, you know, same with payments, right? So I was at the grocery store and we're all trying not to touch anything, Um and, uh, you know, but I can pay with my iPhone without anyone touching my card, without me having to touch money. It's really simple. And uh, even people who are, you know, technophobes who are afraid of things like Zoom are getting comfortable with it now. because mm-hmm. it's, And banks are moving on to it quicker than they've done any technology because they have to. Mm-hmm. So I was just talking with a banking provider this afternoon, uh, just before this call, and we were talking about all the projects that, banks are scrambling to accomplish so that they can do more of the things that they used to do in branch online. Well, they're not going to have a fucking so choice. It's happening in real time. It's, yeah, it's happening, happening in real time. time. So that's why I wanted to talk to you. Because, then, yeah. you know, if there's a silver lining, maybe this is not good for the consumer. Cause if we can strip out those 150 basis points of branch costs, then everyone can earn more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to end it with that. Cause I could talk about this subject forever, but I think we got the main points across. This is a very unique, unique, unbelievable win-win-win for customers. You know, it takes a while for a fintech company to build brand. You have the background to have done this. You're in this for the long game. You have great investors. Uh, are you allowed to say how many, uh, how much in assets or no? No, we don't disclose that because our business model is so transparent that, it, you know, we charge a fee of eight basis points, Got which it. is about half as much of the money market fund. Got and it. so if you multiply that by assets, you'd have our revenue. Got it. Um, but, uh, but it's been growing really nicely and we're grateful for all the support. Um, and we just want to help as many people do as well as they can with their cash. Yeah, so that's MaxMyInterest.com. Uh, Gary, say hi to the fam. I will, likewise. And we'll talk FinTech soon. Okay, thank you, Howard. Be well. Cheers. I mean, that's just a product people just need to know about. It's not, listen, a million dollars and above, you're getting ripped off. It's found money works with your regular bank that you already have. Don't be lazy. You know, you always wonder, you know what I mean? Like it's just one of those things that's going to get you on. It takes, it's a 10 year overnight success. You know, he had an itch, he's scratching it. He toils away with uh, his business for years and then boom, 
lights go off, you know? Right. People are like, teleconference has been around forever. Now I'm just doing it with my doctor finally. Exactly. You know, those, those, those extra 10, 20 basis points, 1% that you can make on your 27%, which he says the average person, I'm higher than that. Um, and that's why it's important to me to just not get ripped off and to have all the, the benefits of a single login. So anyways, I hope people try it out. Um, there's no code because it's, the fees are, are, as he says, like point, what is it, 0.08 basis points. A very transparent business model. So thanks, everybody. We'll be back with another episode of Panic with Friends soon.